Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we get into today's episode, I've got three important updates for you. If you want to increase your success with mid-level and major gift fundraising, you need to grab a copy of Rainmaking, the Fundraiser's Guide to Landing Big Gifts. This book is in use by more than 3,000 nonprofits and has helped raise over a quarter of a billion dollars for charitable causes since 2013. As a leader and practitioner in the nonprofit sector, you may also be looking for a guide to help you navigate some of the biggest challenges that you face. That's why in 2019, I brought together 28 key leaders and fundraisers from across our sector to share their insights and help leaders like you avoid making costly mistakes. My newest book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them, is currently in the hands of more than 1,500 nonprofit leaders, helping them to navigate those key challenges. It can help you too. And you can get either of these resources or both of them simply by going out to Amazon today. The third thing that I've got for you is a request. If you enjoy this podcast and the conversations we have, I'd greatly appreciate you going out to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen and doing two things. If you can go out and give us a rating, then write us a brief review, I'd really appreciate it. Those two things help us find other listeners and they help me continue to secure great guests that'll bring valuable content and insights to you. So please take a minute today to go out and give us a rating and a quick review. It'll only take a minute to do. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. Hey, everyone. We are honored to have one of the titans of our industry on the podcast today. Uh, We're joined today by Bob Carter. Bob is the founder and chairman of Carter Global. He's an expert at developing major and mega gift fundraising campaigns and philanthropic strategies for donors and developing institutional governance and change management solutions for nonprofits. He's chaired uh, seven nonprofit boards in his career and served as counsel to hundreds of organizations all over the globe. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Before we get into our questions for the day, I'd love if you'd take a few minutes and and just tell us a little bit more about yourself that's not in the bio I shared, and tell us a little bit about um, Carter Global and what you're doing there. Sure. Well, you know, when you get to a certain point in life, the bio is uh, sort of outlives itself. And uh, but I've been doing fundraising for a lot of years, uh, a number of decades. Um, And uh, those things all around it, philanthropy, uh, the uh, uh, governance and those kinds of things. And the company, actually, that we that I started about uh, 10, 11 years ago is a result of being around for a while and looking at company structures looking at the needs of the marketplace and so on. And, uh, you know, I'll just go into a description of the company and it's my retirement company, uh, Andrew. I failed at retirement um, <laughs> a number of years ago. I won't give you all the math on that, uh, but, but this company is a, uh, is a global company. Uh, we are operating in eight or nine countries now. I forget what uh, exactly. But we're concentrated in three basic areas. We do strategic planning, we do governance work, and we do fundraising. And that keeps it pretty simple, uh, keeps us focused. And our tagline uh, kind of says it all. The tagline is advancing philanthropy worldwide. And that's a space that we're in, and that's that's what we like to plan. We have about 40 consultants uh, who have various 
skill sets. We we hire to a matrix of what we think the skills are that are needed, and uh, we hire at a minimum of 15 years existing experience with verifiable uh, success. Yeah, so it's so, really sounds like you know you you've built a firm that's essentially a, a management consulting firm for nonprofit organizations. Is that it? It a takes fair on assessment? that. Yeah, it takes on that look. We get an and and you realize this as well, uh, you and Roy, that when you're uh, when you're talking about fundraising, then you have to back up from that and see what the structures are. Uh, you end up looking at the whole organization to see if it can actually function in this really vital area. So you end up getting into uh, organizational structure, roles for everybody, how it all how all the pieces fit together, uh, and that sort of thing. So so we do we do end up doing those kinds of reviews. What's the typical kind of nonprofit that you're engaged with? <laughs> oh my gosh! If I could only define that, that would be great. <laughs> so we we range from uh, sort of large large global agencies like World Vision um, to uh, the local Boys and Girls Club Capital Campaign. Okay. And and you know very complicated things that that we get into. On my volunteer side. Uh, you know, I, I just got involved with the World Health Organization uh, over in Switzerland and setting up their first foundation. Very complicated type of thing. But some of our work with the World Visions and other large NGOs kind of prepared me for that. On the other hand, some of the things that we really love to do is have a regional or local impact uh, on nonprofits of less less size and less complication. <laughs> Sometimes the irony is the politics of the smaller ones are just as intense as the big ones. So uh, yes, they are. Bump into that. So it's really it's hard for us. We're not like a boutique company that does healthcare alone or you know education or those kinds of things. We work in the broader area of philanthropy. Uh, and um, I guess if anything, we've we've developed a pretty good niche in the NGO humanitarian area of converting some of the NGOs who've been doing sponsorship fundraising to major and mega gift fundraising. Oh, okay. That's really smart. Okay. So I'm curious, Bob, you know, so much has transpired in the last year uh, in the philanthropic community because of COVID, because of um, you know, racial um, injustice conversations, uh, and just so much has gone on. I'm, I'm really interested to know, uh, as you look at the last year and kind of where things are headed, what are you most encouraged by and what are you most concerned by? You know, the, the encouragement for me, and I want to address that first, <clears throat> is what it always has been. And that's I'm, I'm always encouraged by a couple of things. Number one is the resilience of philanthropy. Hmm. Uh, it's just remarkable that, you know, our fall offs are relatively minor wherever they might be compared to economic downturns and general public. Uh, business success or private business success and so on. So the resilience of philanthropy is, is remarkable. And I think that's because it comes from the heart and the human heart is still there. And whether we go in good times or bad times, and I did a lot of Zooming uh, and webinars during the, uh, the height, I guess, of the fear factor in the pandemic. And uh, I go back to about, this is my sixth quote recession uh, that I've been involved in successful fundraising throughout recessions. And it's all revolved around the fact that the human heart is still there and people still give. Uh, this one was particularly interesting because 
we had a recession that was created and mandated by government. The other recessions we've had were actually economic failings. We didn't have an economic failing last March. We had a, uh, a governments and governments around the world who said, go home and shut your businesses. And that caused a lot of recessionary uh, behavior in the economic markets and so on. Amazingly, because of the uh, strength of our economic markets prior to that mandated recession, we didn't have the standard uh, fall away of bankruptcies and things like that, as we've had in other recessions. So the uh, resilience came and was demonstrated in the equities market, which had a bit of a bit of a little spasm. But really, we've gone on to set records while we're still in a pandemic mode because there was so much money still available. You know, in 2008 and 2009, uh, the financial institutions around the world started failing. Uh, bad loans, our banks failed here in the US, the government had to bail out the financial institutions and so on. We didn't have that this time. There was still plenty of money in circulation. Uh, part of the resilience of philanthropy on uh, this go round has been that factor, that those who have capacity have a tendency to give more in difficult times. And uh, that's, that's what we, we know will happen. Uh, the two things that really drive philanthropy in our view that we watch very carefully are the equities market for major and mega giving kind of at the top of the scale. And then we watch employment statistics for the balance of fundraising. And the employment is, is a psychological factor as much as it is a real factor. You know, when people are losing their jobs by the tens or hundreds of thousands, it makes everybody in a certain level of giving, lower middle to bottom level of giving, the lower gifts, it makes them sit back and say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'm gonna, gonna be able to pledge. I'm not sure of this. So the uncertainty of their financial market and employment, uh, this, the uncertainty of employment itself uh, has an effect down there. So we've had some of that, but we've had a lot of makeup of that in the major and mega giving. There have been huge transfers of wealth and major gifts during this period, uh, having to do with the equities market. So that's that's the positive side. You know what bothers me? Uh, a lot of things bother me, I guess. But one of them that that could affect philanthropy and and the world, uh, taking a world view of it, is the the division, and that is uh, labeling uh, we and they uh, the extreme unequal distribution of wealth and disposable income is something that's of concern to me. And I, I hope that in our wisdom that we do take a, a, a leadership role in this. And I think the nonprofit field can be catalytic in this area, but we do take a look at how this is affecting us and how the, the economy has, has divided us. Uh, there are always going to be some division of economy. That's the way it functions. There are divisions, there are sectors of economies that do well, there are sectors that don't do as well, and so on. So we can't have everything uh, totally equal in terms of economics. But we'll, we can do a much better job of that distribution and of that, of that opportunity. So that's a, that's a worrisome thing. The other worrisome thing related somewhat to that is public policy. And I'll speak just here in the US, uh, public policy that uh, takes into consideration the fact that if we destroy incentives to create wealth, that's going to have a financial impact on philanthropy. 
the idea of uh, taxing uh, to support nonprofits has its own faults. I've spent enough time on Capitol Hill and in the White House, under the, particularly under the Obama administration, taking a look at how much money actually escapes Washington once it gets to Washington. <laughs> and and it, you know, if I give a dollar to a charity, they have a dollar. I get to deduct a little bit of that. If I give that dollar to D.C. and the government, about 27 cents comes back. So to the charity, possibly. So anyhow, we need to look at public policy in a much more serious way on a lot of levels, not just philanthropy, but on a whole lot of levels of uh, encouraging people to be successful, I think. Bob, you know, it's with coming out of, and I, and I say this and knock on wood, but uh, uh, with, yeah. with, with beginning to come out of COVID, uh, you mentioned how equities and stock market can tend to, to do well, and that, that usually leads to more major gifts. Um, employment, it's been slower. What do you think the biggest opportunities are for, for nonprofits next year, the following year, maybe over the next five years? Get, get out your crystal ball. What do you see for us? Yeah, this is one of those things when you get old, people think you know the future. And I, <laughs> I want to dispel that. Right? <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing that's gotten me through has been nimbleness. And uh, not all not all the forecasting, but I think there are some obvious things, Roy, that uh, are there. The, you know, the opportunity for philanthropy, I think, is to be a catalyst in some of the change. And I've always seen philanthropy. You know, the way we solve big problems generally around the world has three sectors to it. It has three legs to the stool, if you will. And uh, the first is philanthropy, uh, not just because we're in it and I'm in it, but I think we're willing to take chances on new ideas in philanthropy. We're willing to experiment in philanthropy. Private sector has always taken that kind of a lead. So we'll test out something as a new solution, whether it's for educating more people or more economic uh, success or whatever it might be. We'll take a chance on it. But then we need government engagement with us as a partner. And I think the, the partnership between philanthropy and government has to be stronger going forward. I think that's an opportunity now. I think the door is open for that. Uh, that doesn't mean that the government takes it over. I'm talking about a, a partnership here. And I say that because if we have good ideas, the government has more money than we'll ever have in philanthropy to finance it and bring it to scale mm. to actually solve things. Uh, the third part that I look for is the economic part, and that's business uh, that has the capacity to generate revenue around a solution. And if you do that, you get sustainability no longer just a government grant, but you have a sustainable economy around the solution of clean water. And I've seen this work around the world, uh, you know, of, of better nutrition, of whatever it might be, but people get paid to actually deliver the solution. So, you know, without business, without government, I think philanthropy standing alone can't do all the solutions. I think that's an opportunity for us to get more serious about that collaboration as opposed to a lot of people seeing philanthropy operating on its own. And I think, you know, one of the en entities in the U.S., a great entity is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who discovered this early on that, you know, when, when uh, Bill and Melinda Gates were first uh, involved, I was involved with Gavi, their, their uh, vaccination programs, kind of a, a topic these days. <laughs> uh, they, were, they were saving children around the world with vaccines. They quickly realized that when there are let's say 3 million children in Indonesia who usually died, who were living, 
you have to have a civil society into which they'll be educated. There will be opportunities. There will be more health care for them to continue there. All of those things, because the economy was based on the fact that they wouldn't be there. So you have to get involved with government and business to be successful in something as simple as saving three million lives. Uh, so I think these are uh, these are some of the things that I, you know, I talk about as opportunities. I think um, I think getting involved in more funding on the philanthropic side for environmental and climate things. I happen to be a very active philanthropically in conservation chairing a couple boards that are involved in that and investing in that. And I think that's an area that we really need to pay attention to. Climate change, this is real. This is not a fake science. Uh, we have evidence of it in Texas today. Um, things, things are a changing. Yes. And we will not change that very much, no matter what we do, but we, we have to put in place things that make us more adaptable than we currently are. Yeah, that adaptability, you mentioned the importance of engaging with the government to make it scalable, but then engaging with businesses. Uh, I think about the innovation there and what they bring to the nonprofit sector. Uh, what do you see with regard to data technology? How is that changing in philanthropy? You know, over the last decade, it's changed because people actually are using it. I mean, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest change. And I, you know, being coming from a little bit of a, a broader background in marketing and, and all that. I, I knew I knew about it. I knew it was there, but it was remarkable to introduce the concept some years back to uh, organizations. Uh, I think it makes it makes us all smarter. It makes us all better. I think how we use big data and how we gather big data is going to be an ethical question going forward. I don't have to tell anybody uh, listening in that that's a bit of a problem. Privacy and so having worked around the world, I mean, we have the most open, unprivate access of any place in the world. And, and yet I work in areas where that's not true. Uh, it's very difficult in, in uh, Europe and, and some other places to get data on people and that sort of thing. But I think that using that intelligently is going to be a, a really important area that more and more organizations and not just giant uh, NGOs, but you know, charities need to, need to know what that tool can do for them in terms of meeting the needs of their constituents. Uh, and I'm not talking about donors necessarily, I'm talking about their, uh, how they deliver services. Mm. I mean, it works on all sides of, uh, of any kind of a service agency. Mm. So Bob, I, I wanna hone in for a second on the privacy piece that you mentioned. And just get your unvarnished uh, response that, you know, there's a, a case working its way into the Supreme Court where the argument is that states should be able to require nonprofit organizations to disclose the, um, the personal details of any donor who gives over a certain dollar amount threshold. I think the number that I saw was $5,000. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we, we have in our industry been um, highly protective of uh, sharing donor information like that. And I think going back to your point earlier about the, the divisiveness in the country, it just scares me a lot to think about states having access to that and that information getting out. What's your point of view on, on that particular case that's working its way through the courts? And you know, wh yeah. where do you wish we, we would end up there? I, you know, I, I join you. I, I, I think it's a frightening idea. I'm old enough to remember when everybody thought George Orwell's uh, Big Brother book was uh, 1984. We're well past 1984. Uh, 
and we're being watched and we know that the video cameras are everywhere we're, we're being being tracked i am very much against this disclosure requirement or particularly uh, you know data in the public sector the state is the last person i want to know <laughs> know about that frankly because i you don't know where that's going to go right you have no idea where that will end up and how it will be used as a tool we already see people using uh party affiliation as a weapon Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are weaponizing things that people can do. And I, I did a, a little thing when I was chairing the AFP International Board on the freedom of philanthropy. And uh, I think it's, it is one of our freedoms that we've enjoyed. It's a differentiator, having worked around the world, that this country allows people to, uh, gives, uh, gives an, an enhancement, if you will, through a tax incentive or tax deduction to support charitable, charitable things that you believe in. Um, I think that, and this gets us to a fundamental right for everybody not to know everything about you, about you personally. Um, and I think that's, uh, I, will, I will never support going the other, other direction or other way on that, because I think it violates one of those freedoms that we have and the freedom to, to allow us to support what we want in either a public or private way, depending on our choice. Um, yeah. The, the anonymous, <clears throat> there's, there's some very wonderful, humble people around the world who don't want it known that they do things. And uh, I'm okay with that uh, in the charitable sector. I'm very much okay with that. Um, if this were criminal activities and we needed disclosure, I'm all for it. But this is for the greater good. I don't want to ramble on about this, but I think you know where I stand. On yeah, it. no, I appreciate you reacting to that. So one of the other things I want to talk about, you know, our industry has evolved significantly since each of us started our careers. Um, I'm curious to know what guidance you would give to the new fundraiser or the new nonprofit CEO who's just entering the sector today based on what you've learned throughout your career. <clears throat> this is another thing. When you get to a certain point, they think you know all about that. Well, <laughs> you're, looking, you're looking at a guy who had no plan. You know, I started out, I was a, I taught British and American literature, still got some of my stuff back here. By the way, I taught Sh honor Shakespeare, so I very much resent the removal of Shakespeare, but I, that's another topic, because <laughs> I think, I think it, there's something in there on all sides of everything. But anyhow, um, you know, I, I've always said, uh, somebody coming in today, get ready, you get gird your loins up, because you're going to have to be flexible, you're going to have to be nimble. If you had you were predisposed to how this actually works, wipe it out and, uh, and get ready to learn. And, and learning is, is one of the things, and until I was 40 years old, which was a number of years ago, I didn't have much to say because I was listening. I was fortunate to be working with some incredible sort of icons of the business. And I learned an awful lot uh, from people and I call them accidental mentors. That's one thing I, I invite people to do. And remember, we have two ears and one mouth, and there's a reason for that. So pay attention. I know that I had my moments when I was in my 20s and early 30s when I thought I knew everything, and then suddenly I realized I didn't. And uh, you know, it all can't be learned either in a book or anything else. So be out in the world. I do tell people I think it's important because we are much so much more global today that if you can develop your uh, second language skill, if you want to be in global mm -hmm. philanthropy, I mean, I had some success in it as I was fluent in French and that was real, a real help. And 
<clears throat> excuse me, first going beyond the borders here. These days, I wish it was Spanish, but it isn't. And I also encourage people to listen to at least one news stream from outside of the U.S. Because get another view. Don't, don't depend on just CNN and Fox for your views. Take another look at it. I, in traveling around as much as I have, I've always enjoyed uh, watching other, other media, other TV uh, take on what was going on back at home or wherever it might be. And it's different. And that makes you realize this is what they're being told and this is what I'm being told. And maybe somewhere in the middle is where it belongs. And uh, so I, I encourage uh, people new in the career to be a little more global because global impacts, if you're working at the local Boys and Girls Club, for example, you don't know it, but your donors are being solicited globally mm -hmm. through, through this medium. They're online or whatever it might be. And they have options. They have a lot of options to behave philanthropically. So you need to have your game up to speed wherever, wherever level it might be or need to be. And that could include having some global awareness. An awful lot of donors have a lot of questions about what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and we have global citizens today who are very interested in that. It's nice to be articulate, as articulate as you can be about those kinds of things. And learn history. Please learn a little history. Um, where did philanthropy come from? What, you know, philanthropy has been around for ever since man has tried to feed a friend. And uh, you know, it's, it's not a new concept and it's not all money. You know, the America, we in America have monetized philanthropy, but there are many parts of the world where it does mean feeding your neighbor and helping to clothe your neighbor. There's no financial exchange actually that takes place. That's a great so, point. Yeah. You know, you, you've had the benefit of not just working with charities over your career, but also um, working closely with, uh, with the donor community, with high net worth uh, philanthropists. I, I'm curious if, if you could share with us, you know, a, a few thoughts on what you wish more fundraisers and nonprofits actually knew about the philanthropic donor community. Yeah. Well, it, I'll go back to, uh, uh, a basic point that I believed in for a long time. That's one of the things that dawned on me when I was in my 30s and doing a lot of observing of human behavior. Understanding human behavior is what that is. Uh, if you understand enough about human behavior, you can raise philanthropic funds. You can, you can reach in, you can touch the hearts, you know where this is headed. And I said earlier, the resilience of the human hearts is one of the reasons that we get through recessions, et cetera, as well as we do. Uh, but understanding that, you know, what what are the things that uh, people are looking for that stimulate that thought, that create that sensation in the brain? And this is all scientifically proven now, as we all know, that that part of the brain that gets stimulated when people are philanthropic is the same part that's stimulated when you eat chocolate or have sex. So and these are much it's much less risky to be a philanthropist. So I encourage people to do that. But understanding human behavior is certainly one of it. I find that particularly working in the mega and major gift area, and particularly mega, I guess, uh, ultra high net worths, um, you know, they're looking for a few things. And, and one of them is they're, uh, they're looking for a deeper engagement. Uh, many of them have been successful. And, you know, the book, you know, moving from su success to significance. Mm -hmm. And there are many people who are on that track. And years ago, I was asked about uh, Bill Gates. He was just building a company. He wasn't, you know, terribly philanthropic. And I said, give him time. 
he'll make that transition because he'll realize that success in and of itself has very little value unless it has meaning to others. And, and that can be either through the job creation you did or through your philanthropy uh, and uh, green philanthropy and, and all different kinds of philanthropy that come into play. People uh, in that space like the kind of engagement I'm talking about. The other thing they look for is uh, access. And that means they like to have access to something that maybe is not in the newspapers, maybe is not something that everybody else sits down and gets to talk to. That's why having experts, uh, we call them accelerators, where we can have an area expert in a certain type of service that's being delivered, have a direct contact with the mega prospect and get their engagement at a level where they actually talk to the person who's hands-on out there doing the work. Because, you know, development officers are great people, but they're the facilitators. Uh, they're not the product, they're the facilitators. So you have to get the product and bring the product back to the potential donor. I think that's important. The other things that they look for are leverage. Uh, most of the mega donors I've worked with have been, uh, most of them have been entrepreneurs. And that's, again, understanding what makes an entrepreneur tick. Uh, the fact that they like new ideas, they like to be on the forefront of something, and they like their money to be leveraged. So uh, I have a classic, I won't name the charity, but they were about to ask somebody for $250 million to do a program. And I said, my job was kind of on the team. I'm, I'm the devil's advocate a little bit there. I said, well, we got $250 million. We'll do the whole program, right? And I said, what are the odds of that person doing the entire program? They're an entrepreneur doing the entire program alone. So, well, I think the ego and all that, I think, well, that, could, that might be true. Let me tell you something. A lot of entrepreneurs also look for the second investor and they look for the third investor at times. So I said, my suggestion is that you go and you ask them for a third of it. You agree to find another third and you ask them to help find the final third and see how they like that. Well, that's how it went. Mm. And uh, and they loved it. You know, the came a little short on the final third and the entrepreneur gave the balance uh, himself. But, you know, understanding how an entrepreneurial mind works, again, getting back to what's the human behavior here that we're likely dealing with. Uh, I think that was, you know, that kind of thing. They also are interested in solution. And they don't care where it is. You know, there used to be a time, well, Harvard gets this money to do this or whatever. Not so much today. The entrepreneur is not interested in the, uh, you know, in the prestige of where the work is being done. They want a solution. Uh, and they would love to see a collaboration because they colla they're collaborators, usually. They had to collaborate to get their business going in many cases. They were in some part of an ecosystem, you know, of, of some kind where they, they got their goods in, in, on one end from somebody and they got their cash on another end from somebody. And then they rolled out a product that was in the middle. So they had two other collaborators with them. So they like, they like the concept of collaboration. Most of them have had a, uh, they also are, one of the great reasons I love them is because they know how to make money. And uh, they're not afraid of making a significant gift because they know there's more to come. Uh, if you deal with inherited wealth, particularly third generation, they're spending uh, grandmom's money. And let me tell you, they don't know how to make that money. So their, uh, their tendency is to protect it 
Uh, it's like a trust officer's job. People say, get to know the trust officers. We know trust officers have to protect wealth at number one. Uh, number two is distribute it on a reasonable basis. Number three, give it away. So you're in third place with most financial managers. <laughs> and they get measured by the size of their portfolios, not by how much the portfolio is diminished by giving. Yes. That's a great perspective. I mean, I, I even think just, you know, as organizations are looking at their donor base, thinking about, you know, who they, who they should prioritize time investment with, um, the distinction between the high net worth donor who's an entrepreneur and has made her own money uh, versus those who have been inherited. I mean, yeah. it, it seems like it'd just be faster and easier to get to a yes. It is. Uh, yeah. And they like, and they are, they're usually, they're careful, but they're good, quick decision makers. Once, once it's a go, it's a green light, they go. Yeah. And you'll be, you'll have to deal with a question of why can't we do more pretty frequently <laughs> because they like that. They want to leverage that money into somebody else's gift so they can do more and so on. And they're very willing to open up their Rolodex, what used to be a Rolodex, um, to, to introduce because they're excited about the project if, if you do the right thing with them. So I, I got a follow up for you. You mentioned collaboration and the idea that the you know, high net worth donor, particularly the entrepreneur, doesn't care where the solution comes from. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the challenge that presents. I'm thinking about some of the really big legacy nonprofit brands in the country, right? I, I won't name them, but um, you know they, they're all or many of them are large uh, single disease health charities, groups yeah. like that, where where you know, the mentality has long been, we are the experts at this, so support us all. How does an organization like that, that has that kind of mentality, um, start to shift to respect what's changing in the donor community and how those donors want to be engaged? You know, you know what will make them shift a donor will? <laughs> they won't shift of their own momentum. And, you know, I've, I've talked to enough ultra high net worth and high net worth donors, and I've asked them to do that. I've asked them to use use their position because that's what makes it happen so often in a lot of different areas where the donor says, who else is doing this? Hmm. And, you know, the, the arrogant charity, I won't name any either, but they might say nobody. Right. And the entrepreneur says, really? Come, come back to me with the best of the top two or three that, that you, you worry about or you know about. And, you know, and I love them to be challenging a little bit because <laughs> believe me, they know in their marketplace who else is doing exactly what they do. They know yeah, every yeah. day, every hour what that's doing. And if you're dealing with these kinds of potentials or, or existing donors, you have to be on your game about that. I think that's an important part of it. So my wisdom to those large charities that have done well by uh, brand uh, over time is reach out. And I think this is part of being a confident and mature charity to reach out to the other charity and say, what could we do together? Imagine how powerful one program or two programs might be if we combine and, and reach down, reach out. I think that's what we do as people. I think we should do the same thing, reach down, reach out and partner with people and bring them to another level. Uh, again, an entrepreneur will love to see that. There are some uh, foundations out there, private foundations, who will not take a proposal unless it's collaboration. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. So oh. They drive it too. Again, the funder has a tendency to drive this rather than the institution. Yeah. And I have a lot of stories about, uh, you know, things that should be merged, but we get <laughs> to the level 
and the egos get involved and they say, no, it's not good for our brand. And when the truth is, it would be great for programs, no matter what the brand is. Well, I can't stop writing, Bob. <laughs> I there's so and much I can't stop said. talking, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much that you have said that I am just applying to 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 my personal situation in my work at uh, at the Eckert Foundation. But one thing that uh, we've recently done, we've and Andrew touched on the diversity issue a little bit ago. We've added. Uh, three new um, minority board members to our board of directors. Uh, you know, we're doing things like uh, internal surveys to see the number of minority students that we serve. But just seeing the, the complexity of how our boards uh, are changing, uh, what else do you see in that area? How do you see the role of boards um, as we uh, move into the future? I think you're you're already articulated one of the big ones, and that is to to be the leaders in the the DEI area, diversity, and uh, you have to be the leaders in that, and that's where it all starts. And I, I we do I mentioned one of the areas that we concentrate in is governance, and and I do it because I've chaired a lot of boards. I'm very involved in that, and uh, this is one of the, the uh, difficult conversations, I'll put it that way, that you have to have with a board. Because if you statistically, I don't have the, the up-to-date stats on this from board source, but the vast majority of the boards in the philanthropic area here do not reflect what you're trying to do there with your foundation. They just don't, because I get into those boardrooms, a lot of boardrooms over a 12-month period, and I look around and, you know, I'm looking at me, and uh, that's not so good. You might get a... a uh, kick out of this. I'm on, also on the advisory board for uh, uh, Bridge Philanthropic Consultancy, which is uh, run by uh, Dwayne Ashley, and it's the uh, it's the largest 100% uh, African American consulting company in philanthropy in, in the world. We had a board meeting yesterday. We had Reggie Van Lee, uh, who used to be at Booz Allen, very successful African American executive, is the chair of the board. I'm the only white person on the board. And there, there are only a couple of us guys, and the rest are, are women of color. So we need to balance things out in that area. And I'm glad to hear that you're doing it. The other things that I, I, uh, I see boards boring, doing more of and, and getting concerned about is they're realizing that they are accountable. On the board, you are accountable for things like this, as well as the financial uh, future. And... This is no longer an era where a board uh, goes to a nice meeting, has lunch, and listens to seven reports and goes home. The boards that I've chaired have always had strategic meetings, and you read the material outside the boardroom, but we want your brains and recognizing that your boards have to be not only reflective in the way that we were, we were talking a minute ago, but they also have to, be, uh, have to reflect the skill sets and the brains that you need for your particular enterprise. Uh, social networking has built America. It's somebody who went to lunch with somebody and liked them and said, you know, you ought to join the board. And they're hard to get rid of. <laughs> and I've always said, you know, if you, you follow one bad board member home, you find another one. And don't, don't do that. That networking, familial and social networking can, can end up being a perpetual, perpetuating a problem. 
on a board. So I think the serious recognition of the responsibility, we have a lot of good cases that we've worked with over the years. Uh, another one of my meetings yesterday was with uh, an outgoing board chair, ingoing board chair uh, here in Florida that have had a renaissance with their board. We've worked with them for two and a half years and they are on it now and they don't want to give it up because it feels good. They're, they're functioning, they're, they're pretty demanding of the CEO in a way that he wasn't used to, uh, but that's all healthy, that's all good. And they like it now. And they, a number of them, they've changed out a lot of the members, but the ones who remain will confess to you today, they didn't really enjoy being on that board. And now they do, because they think they're moving the needle. They really have that feeling, and they are, they're, they're making change. So I think recognizing that you can move the needle, you can uh, do things. And also to that point, you're accountable. You know, I'm not just talking about getting sued, but that can happen too. But uh, you are accountable by signing on as a board member to be responsible for certain things. I, I put it in three categories, Roy and uh, Andrew. I, I say number, your number one job is governance. Uh, you have to do that. That's legal. You have to do the governance thing and make sure that the, the CEO is operating within the ethics of the mission and so on. Uh, but the other is advocacy. And the third is fundraising, the financial responsibility. If you get your board to understand those three things, it clarifies things for them. Um, and then you have some area experts. If you're a the National Aquarium, we had, you know, uh, one of the Cousteau family members on there because they were still doing a lot of environmental things. So that was why that person was there. But, uh, you know, you have experts in medicine if you're a hospital or you're, you know, medical or whatever. But by and large, those three areas are the things that we, we really emphasize with board members. Um, I made a promise a couple of years ago to my wife not to join any other boards. I have... <laughs> I have so far only broken it twice. So, <laughs> but all for good reason. The WHO thing uh, was just too, too much of an opportunity to be at the global level and hopefully to have some impact on global health. And uh, the other one was Dwayne Ashley's board. The, the fellow who founded uh, the Bridge Philanthropic Company, is, I mentored him when he was at the United Negro College Fund 35 years ago. And we've stayed in touch when he was at the uh, Thurgood Marshall Foundation. I worked with him there. And then 100 Black Men uh, Operations. And so Dwayne and I have stayed together over the years. And so sort of, I sort of needed to be sticking with him on this thing. So, Did you, uh, did you have to make concessions for your wife when you, when you joined those two boards? She can hear me. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> Sort of, kind of, yeah, yeah, sure. She also has a bit of the disease. She's the, the chair of our commissioners here where we live, public, okay. public official. So I am very supportive of any committee she's on or anything, very supportive. So That's we work fun. it out. Well, Bob, this has been uh, such a value-packed and insightful conversation. Really appreciate you being here today. I'm, I'm curious if, uh, if somebody that's listening wants to engage Carter Global, what's the best way for people to reach you? Well, they, they can go on our website, which is www.carter.global. Uh, and, you know, you can contact us through that, or you can uh, contact um, me if you'd like. It's uh, uh, bcarter at carter.global. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. Really appreciate your insights today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Roy, thanks so much. It's an honor. Thank you, sir. Nice to talk. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.